was listening to a podcast this week by a guy named Dr. Henry Cloud. Some of you may have heard of of Henry Cloud before. He wrote uh, some really uh, good books, like there's a book called Boundaries that's a really helpful book. Uh, he wrote another book called Changes That Heal. Uh, you know, he's very involved. I mean, he uh, he's a, you know, doctor of psychology, right? But then he's also heavily invested in the Christian realm as well. And so so uh, this podcast that he was, uh, he was addressing the issue of how stress affects your brain. He was talking about uh, how when when you are under stress, your brain makes a, a whole lot of decisions in terms of how you feel. And, and the reason that your brain does this under stress is because you kind of have this thing wired into you that when you encounter um, kind of a frightening situation or, or something that's very challenging, you kick into kind of fight or flight, right? Uh, so, so as you approach something that, that could be kind of inconquerable to you, uh, your brain goes into stress mode. And, and essentially what he was saying is stress mode is not a good place to make decisions. Like you can't let stress make your decisions for you because when your brain is under stress, uh, it actually, um, it, these kind of biological realities wire into you kind of believing a whole bunch of lies. So, um, so when you are stressed out, say because of a failure, maybe that you've had, maybe it's just like one failure. Um, what you tell yourself is, I am a failure. Like your brain goes into this place where any doubt, any challenging situation that I might come up against, I am thinking that maybe I will fail because I failed in this one instance. And, and it's not just because you failed in that one instance that you're doing that, but it's actually your brain under stress that is now telling you in every instance, everything is going to fail, so I just need to back out, right? This is why it's awful to make decisions under stress. And so what he says you need to do, as he was talking about this, is he says you kind of need to have some predetermined responses prepared for when you get under stress. That way, even though your brain, your physical brain, might have these reactions, you kind of have some go-to places in your mind that you can say, okay, even though I feel like this... I have some go-to responses that I know how to kind of turn the other way, right? So this is, this is what he was talking about. And so he said, if you are prepared with kind of this predetermined response, then you immediately know kind of where to tell your actions to go, even though your brain and your emotions are telling you something else. So, uh, so what's really interesting is today, in today's story, we're going to watch Moses. And we're going to watch how Moses has been shaped over uh, kind of years of, of walking with the Lord and how that shaping has really, uh, it's kind of given him a particular predetermined response that, that we see take place here today. Because what's happened is that, that the Lord has actually trained this predetermined response into Moses. Like over the course of the plagues and over the course of the miracle of the Red Sea and all of this stuff, he's kind of trained this predetermined response into Moses. And now what Moses is having to do is he's now having to pass on that predetermined response to Israel. So, uh, so Exodus 17, 8, this is what it says. It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So, so who are the Amalekites? The Amalekites are actually descendants of Esau. So back in the book of Genesis, there were these two guys. They were brothers with each other named Jacob and Esau. And um, Jacob and Esau had a little bit of a rivalry, right? They had this challenge between the two of them. Jacob took Esau's birthright. 
but he did it in a way where like he forced kind of forced Esau to give it up, right? Esau really wanted some some soup and some meat and like this kind of stuff. And so he gave up his birthright for some soup, right? And so this is like, that's the story that we get and we have this rivalry. So now uh, what you have is like when you have descendants of people, kind of those initial rivalries carry on in their descendants. So, so this is who the Amalekites are. And, uh, and on top of that, they're also raiders. So, so they're raiders. They're people who kind of scavenge. They go after to get what they can get. And, and their oral tradition has told them that Israel, like Jacob, these people, like Jacob took their ancestors' birthright. And just how oral tradition works in the ancient Near East, like it is the most formative thing that you have. And so the Amalekites, if they're descendants of Esau, what they've been told is that these people, Israel, they're, they're ancestors of this guy who took your birthright. And so now that, that country has been under the protection of the strongest nation in the known world. Israel has been under the protection of Egypt for all of this time, and now they're not in Egypt anymore. And so the Amalekites, they see this nation wandering. They know that this nation is wandering out in the wilderness. They, they see an opportunity for them to come up against them. And so, so they're here at this place called Rephidim. Uh, so if you actually look back to uh, chapter 17, verse 1, you can see that this is where Israel was already camped when they tested God. So, so what has just happened with Israel is they kind of quarreled with Moses. They, they basically raised up an insurrection within them. They were ready to stone Moses to get rid of their leader. And, uh, and then this is the place where they tested God. And then God you know, shows up and provides the water from the rock. That's the very last thing that happened. And, and so what's interesting is that framing the last story and this story is this question in Exodus 17, 7. It says, And he called Moses, called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So you have these raiders who are coming against the people of Israel, and they come in the middle of the whole nation kind of having this overarching question, Is the Lord among us or not. And this question, it's indicative of the lack of faith that exists in Israel. Like the way the narrative recounts the event to us, it's almost as if they barely finished the last thing that happens before this thing with Amalek comes up. And in the middle of these two stories, you have this question that is a complete lack of faith on Israel part, Israel's part, and they want to know, is the Lord among us or not? So now, I want you all to put yourselves in the shoes of Moses. Like, become Moses with me for a second. Figure out how in the world are you going to get these people through this battle? Like, as Amalek comes against you, you have these people. How in the world are you going to be able to move past this? Because right now you have a multiplicity of problems in front of you. So if you are Moses, number one, you are dealing with a people who are nomadic which means that they don't have a home. They don't have a fortress. They're wandering out in the wilderness. They don't have safety. They don't have mountains on their sides. They, they are very vulnerable at this point. 
And so that also means that, uh, that the implication of them being vulnerable is number two, your women and your children who are a part of your nation are particularly vulnerable. So think of, think of just this massive nation, the people of Israel wandering out in the wilderness, like nearly two million people. That's what we're dealing with right now. Like there are people on the outskirts of this nation. Like that, this is a massive group of people moving through the wilderness there. And that means there are people on the outskirts. It's interesting. If you look back at the way Moses retells this story in Deuteronomy 25 in verses 17 and 18, he says uh, that the Amalekites, they came and attacked the people on the outskirts. Like they came and, and took advantage of the people who were far off from the center, right? That's what was going on. So, so you have women and children who are vulnerable. You have vulnerable people out on the fringes. And number three, another problem that you have is that your people have never fought in battle before. Like they used to be slaves and they haven't been trained how to fight. Like they have no formal awareness of what this looks like. And then another problem, and this is the most important problem, your people don't believe that God can do anything. Like they seriously lack faith at this point. They're asking, is God even among us? Well, there is a pillar of cloud and fire like they have never seen before right in front of them. Uh, and, and then you add to that, like the reality that... Um, you know, they came out of, when they came out of Egypt, we're told that they came out equipped for battle, right? They came out prepared to fight. But what did the Lord actually say about those people who were prepared to fight? He said, you know what? I'm not going to take them the way of the Philistines because I know the moment that they start to fight with the Philistines, they're going to turn around. So Exodus, it says this in Exodus 13, 7. It says, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, least the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So it doesn't, it doesn't say that God couldn't bring victory against the Philistines. It says that when the people encountered the Philistines, they were going to be ready to hightail it back to Egypt. They were going to be done. So, uh, so then on top of that, you have this most recent failed test. You have this uh, lack of faith. Number five, this is the fifth problem that Moses is fading, facing. Um, this lack of faith, this questioning of the Lord, this quarreling, this grumbling, this complaining has actually led to infighting in the people of Israel. Like they're fighting against each other and a disunified force, they are not unified right now, a disunified force is a vulnerable force. Like they're complaining led them into disobedience, right? They didn't trust the Lord. They didn't do what the Lord said and their disobedience led them into open rebellion where they were ready to stone Moses. All of this exists, and now you add to it the fact that they are being attacked. Somebody is coming against them in this time. So there, there's a host of problems now. Uh, I kind of think of it like, uh, you know, when the coronavirus hit. And uh, think of, like, there are organizations, when they talk about the, the, the things hitting, they didn't have money saved up. And, you know, they knew that that was a problem. But then when the coronavirus hit and they didn't have money saved up, then it exacerbated the problem of not having money saved up. Like, this is just the reality. Like, when you have problems and then crisis hits, it exacerbates all the problems that you already have, right? It makes it more intense. So my question is, what can a leader like if you are Moses, if you're in the shoes of Moses right now, what can a leader possibly do with all of these sets of roadblocks that are in front of them? Like how, if you, if you are the leader of Israel, how can you hope to bring your people to the other side of this event? 
How can these people possibly make it to the other side of this battle? So we're going to watch what Moses prioritizes for these people as they go on. So verse 9, it says this. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So, uh, so first thing to notice here, Moses knows that they do need to fight. Like they need to fight. Joshua go, needs to go and get some men protect, prepared. And those people are going to go protect the vulnerable. They're going to confront Amalek while they're attacking people out on the fringes. And so he sends Joshua. Joshua is a relatively young guy at this point, and And Joshua is going to gather up the men to fight. So that's the first thing to notice. The second thing to, to notice is that Moses is not going to fight. Moses is going to go do something else. And in fact, he recognizes that fighting right now is not the most useful thing that I can do. Instead, what he says is, hey, you know, I see that hill over there? Joshua, I'm going to go up to the top of that hill, and I will have the staff of God in my hand. Now, why is that important? Why does he highlight the staff of God? The, the reason is, is that the staff, like Moses' staff, is the tool that God has used to display his power with clarity. It is, it is the way that God's power has been shown to Israel again and again and again. And so, so the implication of this is, when, when Moses tells Joshua about this and he sends him off to go get men, he says, essentially, like Joshua, your army needs to know something. While they're fighting, I'm going to be up on that hill with the staff of God in my hand. You need to watch for me. You need to be aware that this is going to happen. So verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So uh, Moses and Aaron and Hur, this is Hur's first appearance. Um, but uh, we, So trying to understand who he is, he's very likely just one of the elders of the people, right? He's a leader in Israel. And, and you essentially now have three key leaders of the people of Israel, three people who have important roles of leadership who are now responding to this situation. And they're going to go to a place where everybody else will be able to see them. So, uh, so you know what's surprising about this story? Is that if I'm going to read a story about a battle, I, I don't expect to see the details that the story is showing us right now. Like, think of, think of the words in the, the book like a camera, like a video camera. And we're watching a movie, and now there's like all of this action getting ready to happen on the battlefield, and the camera like literally pans away from that action and just looks at these three leaders. That's what's happening right now. So this is surprising that we don't get to see the details of what's happening with this battle. So um, so we're going to watch these leaders, and we're going to watch how they respond to crisis. Now, before we watch that, there's a, just a concept that I want us to remember as we have been walking through, just following Israel as they've left Egypt, as they, they've walked out of Egypt, we watch, we're watching how God is shaping them for the kind of people that they're supposed to be. Like we're watching how God is trying to form them. So remember this, the struggle of the wilderness shapes you. The struggle of the wilderness shapes you. God is using the struggle of their experience in the middle of the wilderness to turn them into the kind of people that he wants to be. So, so what are Moses and these leaders doing? You know, these events, these things, these stories that we've been reading as, as they've walked out of Egypt, uh, it's kind of like training. 
Like, what kind of people are these people going to be when they show up in the land that God has prepared for them? Like, how is God shaping their worship? What is God doing with their memories? How is God teaching them to trust Him? What are God's tests revealing to them? And now in this moment where tensions are are very high, where there's this moment of high stress, uh, they have to answer the question, and we're going to answer the question, like how are they supposed to do battle with other nations? Because the land that they are going to take, the land that, the God is, that God is sending them into, it's not empty. Like there are other nations in the midst of that land. They're actually going to have to fight. And so, so what's happening here is Moses and these leaders, they're teaching the people how to fight. So I want to move this to a question about you for a second. Um, I ask you the question, like, what is God forming you for? Like, what is he shaping you for? What kind of person does he want to make you into? Like, who does he desire you to be? You know what? You have inside of you your own set of roadblocks between here and there. You have your own set of priorities that are actually keeping you from becoming that person that he designed you to be. You have your own set of distractions that are pulling your attention away from that thing that he designed you to be. But but God, God, you know what? God may have saved you, but like your struggle to become that person has not disappeared. Like the struggle is still existent. So, So to get from here to there... How, like, how do we actually learn how to overcome? Like, how do we w- learn how to, to actually fight these battles, these struggles in an effective way that we can actually become the people God wanted us to be and not just like spend forever dreaming about becoming the people God intends us to be? So, um, so let's talk about the word overcome. Like, what do we mean by overcome? So, you know what? There are, there are battles raging inside of you, like between the Holy Spirit and your fleshly desires, your broken desires. There are battles raging inside of you between you living for yourself and living absolutely surrendered to God. Like there are battles inside of you that you might become more like Jesus. There are battles inside of you that you might actually live for God's purpose of extending His blessing and the knowledge and awareness of Him into your spheres of influence, right? So... um, so we've talked about um, our purpose statement here, that we are working together to restore hope to all people. So if we're going to be people who restore hope, who actually walk into the midst of hopelessness and extend the hope that the Lord offers to the places that we go, like if we're going to be able to do this, it means that God has to overcome something inside of us. Like, God must actually renovate us. He must undo the person that we used to be. Like, we actually need to see God's power go to work by taking a wrecking ball to the old version of ourselves so that we can see Christ live his life through us. So, um, a further question then. If we have a lot of things that we need to overcome, my question is, how do God's people become the kind of people who overcome? How do God's people become the kind of people who overcome? So we're going to see that in verse 11. Verse 11 says this. It says, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. 
And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So, so you know, like we don't see any details about um, Israel's battle formation. Uh, we don't see any explanation of the kind of armaments that they had. We don't see any scenes of struggle on the field. What we get instead is this picture of Moses lifting up his staff. And every time he lifts up his staff, they gain ground in the battle. And every time that staff lowers, every time his arms start to fall, Amalek gains ground. So, so what's going on? I think what, like, what's happening here is that, and this is actually amazing, Moses, we've watched Moses over this time kind of question the Lord and wonder if the Lord was actually going to work. We're seeing Moses develop this faith reflex. Like we're seeing, we're seeing Moses kind of have this predetermined response that, okay, now we've hit something hard. You know what I need to do? I need to, I need God's power to work. I need God's power to work. And so, so we watch him at the Red Sea and, and he cries out to the Lord and the Lord said, why do you cry to me? Like, just do the thing. Like, you know, hold the staff out over the water and, and I'll split the water, right? And, and we watch Moses through the tests in the wilderness and he's out in the middle and he cries out to the Lord and the Lord works. And we see the Lord work again and again and again. And he's actually starting to learn, like, if we are in trouble, like if we have problems, what do we do? Well, we need to see the Lord work. We need to see God go to work. And so, so uh, my question is, and one of the questions I've been processing as I've been working through this passage, what is the miracle here? Like why the lifting up and the lowering? Like why stand up on the hill? Like what is Moses doing? So, so remember their question, the question that we frame this whole thing with. Is the Lord among us or not? That's the last thing that they ask before we see this story take place. Is the Lord among us or not? So as as they fight in the urgency of the situation, I think Moses, he's answering the question for them. Like as he holds the staff of God up, he gets up high on this hill and he holds the symbol of God's power high up in the air. So that every person who is fighting can visibly, tangibly see the answer to their question while they are fighting. And that answer is, the Lord is powerful. He is among you, and he fights for you. So as Moses does this, essentially what he's saying is saying, hey Israel, stay focused on God's power and overcome. Stay focused on God's power and overcome. So now I want you to imagine you're a soldier on the field. You're somebody who has been called out to go fight. And, uh, and you might even be one who asked the question, is the Lord among us or not? You might even be one who, who asked that very question. And then in the midst of that, you see the realities that you are now a, a divided nation, that you are an untrained people going out to war. And you're maybe asking the question, how in the world are we going to win? And then you remember at the beginning when Joshua called you out and told you you, you were going to go into the battle, he, he told you about Moses being up on the hill. He said, keep your eyes up there, be aware of that. And so, so then you look And there's Moses with his staff raised up in the air. It's the same staff that you saw turn into a snake. That's the same staff that Moses used to make a mockery 
of Egypt's gods. It's the same staff that split the waters and dried up the ground. It's the same staff that was used to answer every single one of your complaints while you were out in the wilderness. And every time Moses uses that staff, God uses that staff, God actually works powerfully for the sake of you and your people. And as you look at that staff, you are just inspired to trust in God. Like you actually, faith starts to rise up within you as you are in the midst of this battle. And so you turn to strike your next opponent. And you swing your sword. You've never been trained in battle before, but when you swing that sword and your opponent holds up their shield, you shatter their shield. Just smashes to pieces. Right? Like, like no problem at all. Like nothing. And then you look down the lines of your people advancing and you see your people like having the same sort of experience that you just had. Like as you look up and you remember God's power at work and then you look around your people, you're actually advancing. And, and then you notice, like you actually start to put two and two together. Like every time the staff is lifted up, Like, you remember God's power. You're inspired to remember God's power. Faith rises up in you. You trust God to actually do His work, and He works through you and your people to push the enemy back. Like, you see this pattern. And so the the question, is God among us? Well, yeah. He fights through us. You actually start learning how to fight under God's command. Like, this is what Moses is doing. He's teaching them. So you stay focused on God's power, and you're able to overcome. Like, this is what you're learning as you go through this process. So verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So for what it's worth, like Moses is getting up there in years, uh, and he he understands something. Like he knows that uh, that I need to keep these people focused on God's power. Like that's what I need to do, and then we will overcome. If I can keep these people focused on God's power, we will overcome it. And these leaders, along with Moses, as they watch what's happening, as they watch what Moses is trying to do, they see the importance of the staff being lifted up high. They see the importance of the staff being visible for everyone else. And so they do whatever it takes to keep the people fixated on God's power. And so they come alongside Moses and they hold his arms up and the entire so that through the entire battle they can actually take ground. They can actually overcome because they understand, like these people, if we're going to win, these people must have faith. And so they come alongside Moses. They lift up his arms. If we can keep these people focused on God's power, we will overcome. So as Moses, uh, he keeps this symbol of God's power ever before the people. And then Aaron and her, they come alongside him. They come to enable him uh, to, to, to help him keep uh, continuing on. And, and so as I've heard people teach about this passage and this verse, and um, I've heard people say something like, you know what you really need? You really just need some good teammates around you. You need some people who are going to come and like support you, and you know, lift you up and cheer you on, and, and that'll be really helpful. And I hear that. like It's a valuable point to make. It really is like important. But the value of Aaron and her in this moment goes beyond that. Because the thing that they do here, they recognize what's most important. They recognize what's most important. What do they already know? Well, as leaders of the people of Israel, they know already that these people lack 
faith. They know that these people lack faith. And so they recognize that they have this kind of urgent task in front of them and they they need to accomplish this urgent task. And the only thing that that will actually do it, it's not going to be like advice on kind of military strategy. They're not going to like kind of try to talk Moses' ear off about that, but but it might be valuable at a different time. But right now in the midst of this urgent situation, it's not advice on on another strategy. Uh, It's not even anxiety about the people starting to lose, right? Because there are those moments where, where Amalek starts advancing on Israel when the staff goes down. They don't, they don't get anxious and they don't tell Moses, hey Moses, I'm really worried about what's going to happen right now. Well, no, what do they do? They see what happens when the staff is lifted up, when it's in front of the people and they come alongside him and they say, we're going to help you keep God's power in front of the people. So verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So because Aaron and her, they recognize this important task, this most important task all day, Moses is able to keep this, the symbol of God's power in front of the people, and God actually wins the victory through his army. So, so I want you to notice, this miracle, and it's presented to us as a miracle, this miracle in the passage is drastically different than any other miracle that God has performed up to this point. Because... Up to this point, it's kind of been like, you sit there and watch what I'm going to do. Like You sit there and, and watch. So watch and I'll fight for you in the plagues. Watch and I will split the Red Sea and, and throw the Egyptian army into disarray. And, and watch uh, in the midst of even these miracles of testing where you feel like you really need something. Uh, I will show myself to be a provider for you. But now it's actually like, Israel, no, you fight. You do your part, but in the midst of that, you stay focused on me. Like God worked, actually, it's interesting. God worked through very natural means to accomplish this victory. I imagine this, if you were just watching this take place and had no context for what was going on, you might be a little surprised at the outcome because, you know, these people look like they don't know what they're doing and these people look like they do know what they're doing. But, But at the end of the day, like, it's not. It doesn't seem like a miracle. Like, you didn't see anything massive happen. You just saw one group of people beat the other group of people. But the, 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 the miracle is that God actually uses these people who have no training, who have no equipping, who are not at all prepared for what they're about to face, who are divided against each other, and He uses them, keeping their attention on Him to win the victory. The victory, like it came through, uh, the, their victory was completely dependent on their dependence on the Lord in the midst of the battle. So, uh, so verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So uh, I was just asking like a little trivia question. What was the first scripture that Moses ever wrote? Like, what's this first scripture that was ever written down? Like, we might, we might be inclined to think it was, uh, you know, it's Genesis chapter one, right? In the beginning, God, right? That's like what you might be inclined to think. Actually, like, this is, this is the first place where God tells Moses, like, write this down. 
You need to make sure that you keep track of this. And it's just interesting, like there's this idea, like the first thing that you write down, the first thing that you understand about God, like kind of guides all of your understanding about God. If this is the first thing that Moses wrote down, what is it? Like, what is he saying? It's essentially like, you need to keep God's wonder-working power front and center for you. And so he writes this down for Joshua. Like, this is Joshua's instruction. Like, Joshua, how are you going to fight your battles? Well, you need to do this kind of training, and you need to make sure that your soldiers eat this kind of food and all this. Like, that all may have value, right? But the first thing, the most important thing that Joshua needs to know is your people need to be focused on God's power. So verse 15 and 16 says this. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So in battle, banner is the rallying point. Like it is the thing that lets you know there is still a promise of victory. There is still hope that we will be able to take that ground. So in the movie, The Patriot, like you get this battle scene, right? And the flag goes down. And then people start retreating because once the flag goes down, you get the idea that there's like no hope of victory, right? And so what does Mel Gibson do? He like goes up and he grabs the flag and he lifts it up high in the air so that the people know there is still hope of victory. Like we can still take ground in this. It motivates the people. It moves the people. It inspires them that the thing that they are fighting for is still effective and can still take ground here. And so in warfare, like the, the presence of the banner, the presence of the flag, it provides hope for victory. So how much more would this be true for the Israelites when their flag, their banner, is the very symbol of God, like the almighty God's power, the God who created the universe, the very symbol of his power to them, and God himself. So it wasn't just to them a symbol, but God himself was exercising his power through them. So, so here Joshua and here the future leaders of Israel, they start to understand something about how God works. The key to victory. So, so um, Moses' message to them is stay focused on God's power and overcome. Okay, so what? So what? Number one. Do you want to see real and lasting victory? If so, you need to decide to adjust your focus. So, um, so for these people, the symbol of God's power was the staff. Like that is the thing that represented for them God's power. For us, God's power is evident nowhere more clearly than in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, so Jesus, Jesus came with power and authority. He healed people. He casted out demons. He provided food for people. He taught people with clarity the things of God. He performed miracles. Like all of this showed uh, clearly God's power in the person of Jesus. And then what did he do? Well, he gave up his life on the brutality of the cross to utterly destroy the power of our brokenness and sin. 
Like to enable us to stand before God righteous and blameless and, and forgiven and to free us from the power of Satan over us. To actually like make it possible for us to receive the gift of eternal life. To, to enable us to receive the Holy Spirit. Like in all of those things, he broke down everything about us that was broken to live his life in us and through us and actually bring us to life. And then, like in the moment of the cross, like he sacrificed to accomplish all of those things. But then he actually rose from the grave and displayed his power over the only thing to which our powerlessness was very clear. He displayed his power over death, proving that he is powerful to accomplish everything that he said he would accomplish. And so church, there is power in Jesus' name. You know, there's a, there's a song that says there's power in the name of Jesus. And I wanted to let you know, like that, like those are not just words that we sing. It's something that is actually true. Like there is life giving truth and power found in Jesus Christ. Truth that breathes life into dead souls. So like, are you tired of losing battle with your broken passions? Like, are you tired of seeing apathy just rue the day in your life? Are you, are you tired of like falling into the same old patterns again and again and again? Are you tired of just living purposeless? Like spinning your wheels, not knowing what you're doing. Let me, okay, so this, like, that's the negative way to ask the questions. Can I ask a different set of questions though? Like when you meet people, like when you walk up to people, like do you want people to meet Jesus when they meet you? Like, do you actually want to be the kind of person that when people come to sit down at your table, they're sitting down at the table of Jesus Christ? Like, do you want, do you want uh, rivers of living water to be flowing from you all the time that you might speak life and breathe life into the places and spaces that you go? Like, do you want to overcome the old you so that Jesus can live his life through you? You know, I, like, I just want to ask you, I ask you these questions. I want to ask you, like, if you have a vision for how Jesus can start impacting your spheres of influence, how he can actually, like, start living through you, because in order for that to happen, you need to decide to have nothing but Jesus. You need to decide to have nothing but Jesus, like only Jesus. So, so if, you, if, if you have a gift of food or family or relaxation or, or enjoyment, you have it because Jesus gave it. And if you don't have any of those things, you still have Jesus. So, um, so I want to encourage you this morning, like if you find yourself in that place, develop habits that constantly put Jesus in front of your face that make your heart grateful for His power, that compel you to go deeper with Him. And if you find something in your life saying, well, no, I still want to have this, I still want to have this, can, can you just like pray and, and go into the Word and spend time with Jesus to see how He can become more important to you than that thing is? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says it like this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. So it's not like you first set the thing aside and then you start looking at Jesus, but as you're trying to set the thing aside, you're doing it the whole time you're fixated on Jesus, the founder and perfecter 
of our faith. So, so I wonder how many of us, like we fail to see lasting change because at various points when we may have decided, okay, what I need to do is I kind of, I just need to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Like I just need to do better. I just need to try harder. I just need to like not sin here. I need to do good things over here. And, and, and when they're like, in reality, like there are a whole lot of like not really sinful things in your life that you continue to do, but there are places where you could put your focus on Jesus. Like things that could help you grow in love and affection for Jesus. So like, like Netflix, Hulu, entertainment, like these things are not sinful. Like they're not sinful, but if part of your reason for not pursuing Jesus more, if part of it is busyness, you say, I'm, I'm too busy to do that. And, and you've actually, like, you see, ah, I've got a battle. I actually want to see Jesus live his life through me. And I have a, a battle to fight here. And, and you've got 15 hours a week of, like, entertainment. It's keeping you from putting your eyes on Jesus when you could be focusing on Jesus. I want to tell you, like, busyness is not the problem. Busyness is not the thing that's keeping you from putting your eyes on Jesus. Actually, I'd suggest what happens, like, like maybe you're trusting something other than Jesus to be the thing that you're trying to have. So, so I want to encourage you, decide, decide. Choose to have nothing but Jesus. And then let me tell you, when you do, I want you to talk to a pastor, I want you to talk to a church leader, I want you to talk to a trusted brother or sister, I want you to talk to a mentor, I want you to talk to somebody and let them know, hey, I really want to go deeper with Jesus. I've noticed, I've kind of been on the fringes for a long time, but could you help me go deeper with Jesus? So that's number one. Number two, you need people who fight to keep Jesus in front of you. You need people who fight to keep Jesus in front of you. So, so Aaron and her, they recognize the importance of this. Like, we need to help everybody else see God's power. And in our case, it's like we need to help people, our people, see Jesus. So I tell you, like, one of the best moves that I personally have made in this season of COVID-19, which is like its own set of challenges, I've actually started working with a leadership coach. And uh, so I've been talking to this person. He's been helping me understand like my leadership and how God has shaped me. But the most important thing that he does, like every time we get together, his greatest service to me is taking my eyes off of the thing that I'm trying to lead right now or the thing that I'm trying to do or the thing that I'm trying to accomplish and actually putting my eyes on Jesus, asking me questions like, where is Jesus in the midst of this situation? Fixing my eyes on Jesus, shaping my affection for Jesus. So as like he does this and he speaks to me, like one of the most helpful things that he does is he puts my attention where it needs to be. So, so Alliance Bible Church, like I just want to ask you the question, do you understand like what an amazing gift you have here at this church? Do you understand what an amazing gift you have? Because there are people out here 
all the time who are working their butts off to make sure that you can stay fixed on Jesus, that your eyes can stay fixated on Jesus. People leading small groups and people striving to figure out, like, how do we do things when this whole COVID thing has shut down in-person gatherings? We need to keep Jesus in front of people. How many phone calls do I need to make to make sure Jesus stays in front of people? How many uh, Bible studies do I have to organize? And how do we, like, think of the people who are just, like, trying to work out how we even gather for in-person worship. Like we have a whole team dedicated to saying, okay, how do we like honor some restrictions and some boundaries because we need to gather because what do we need to do? We need to keep Jesus in front of people. And then I think of like our tech team working their butts off to make sure that we can get a live stream out to those who can't join us in person because we need to stay fixated on Jesus. Like this church is full of people who are committed to helping us stay fixed on Jesus. And that is an amazing blessing. Church, I pray you don't take it for granted. Why do they do this? Why does any of it exist? Why does every person work hard? They do it. That we can keep Jesus in front of us. And the implication of that is this. So if that's what people here do, the implication of it is the best service that you can provide to a brother or sister in Christ is work and strive to keep them fixated on Jesus, to fix their eyes on Jesus. You know, um, so when I when somebody comes into my office, or I have to sit down and we do any sort of counseling, you know, there could be a host of problems that come up. It, you know, it doesn't matter. One of the things that I always strive to do, and I don't do it perfectly each time, but one of the things that I strive to do is actually strive to remind them Jesus. What has Jesus accomplished? Can I fix your eyes on Jesus? How can I draw your attention to him? So, so church, if you want to see Christ-like people flow out of this church to actually impact our spheres of influence, like worrying about your own focus is important, but I want to encourage you not just to worry about your own focus, but to actually labor through your words and actions to draw people's attention Jesus, because that is the source of our hope. That is where our attention needs to be. That is where our focus needs to be. That is the proof to us that we are not just spinning our wheels as we try to labor in this life and follow God, but he has actually accomplished a victory. And so church, with that being said, uh, would you stand with me as we pray? And then we'll close in worship. God, I'm thankful for this, just this understanding, this lesson, this event that took place in history that shows us the way that you enable your people to overcome. Lord, the way that you enable your people to have victory. Lord, may we learn like may may we not just intellectually know something from this but may you actually instruct our hearts or there might be inclinations towards guilt or shame like oh i'm not fixing my eyes on jesus enough i need i need to do better and lord let us not spend too much time in that space but let us simply decide to have nothing but you but you have power to do this. Holy Spirit, you, you have power to do it. And as we do it, Lord, I ask 
that in a powerful way, you would start to shape our affections and you would start to shape our heart because even my heart is not always in a place where it is fixated on Jesus or where even where Jesus is the most satisfying thing in the moment. And Lord, I, I'm not proud to admit that. But Lord, would you shape my heart? Would you shape our hearts to love and adore having only Jesus? May Jesus ever be the fixation of our souls. Holy Spirit, as you draw us to Jesus, would you shape us into the image of Jesus? We pray all of this in Jesus' name.